you have your Bibles, go and open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd like to tell you we, in our VIP area, we'd love to give you a copy of God's Word because our ambition and our goal over the next several weeks is that you would pick up the Bible on your own and read it. Believe it or not, there was a time in human history where there was no printing press that came in around the 1500s, and so there was not access to the written Word. So you had to take someone's Word for it. The good news is, is that you and I get to read the Word for ourselves. People actually died trying to spread the word. There are still parts of this world where people are right now sneaking Bibles into that area of the world so that they can have access to the written word of God. Yet the American household has around four of these in their house that are often unread and unturned throughout the year in your own life. We want you to know the God of this word. We believe that within it you'll find life, you'll find the promises of God, you'll find the gospel that's good news for every heart and soul that are gathered here today. You'll find the precepts and the principles for which God created you to live and how he's designed you to live in dependency upon the Holy Spirit to be the person that God has called you to be in his spirit by his word. There's a great, uh, uh, there's a great uh, difficulty that comes when we seek to get to know God apart from the Word of God. We end up, and it's what we talked about in week one, with pseudo-Jesuses, these versions of Jesus that have been culturally appropriated to, fix, uh, to fit our sin habits and to fit our culture, when the truth is Jesus uh, does not fit into our culture and would still be rejected just like he was rejected back then if he were here today. Uh, the Word of God is an authoritative word. It's so that we would know God and we would know His way, so that we would know that it's only through dependence upon His Spirit and salvation from His Son that we can walk His way in the life that He's called us to live. And so the first week we talked about the fact that you and I, if we're going to know this God, need to know His Word, because to know His Word is to know this God, and to drift from this Word is to create a pseudo-version of this God that cannot deliver you, save you, or be anything that you think He can be with the proof-tech promises you've pulled from scripture and applied them to your circumstance and you've sat waiting patiently for God to come through on a half truth which is a whole lie in a lot of our lives so we want you to know the word so that you can know God and that was week one we want you to know the promises of God so that you can trust his word and we talked about differentiating the precepts and principles of scripture from the promises of scripture God comes through on his promise 100% of the time he teaches us principles that are general truths that in a broken world are still the best ways of living but still in this world you will have trouble you will sow good seed that sometimes will fall into what you thought was good ground and then the harvest will be stolen or the harvest will be taken away or it won't yield what you thought it would yield in your life and you thought wait a minute I thought we were living God's way and you need to understand that God's way does not mean a way that lacks trouble but is often a way that greets trouble head on with the power of the spirit that endures it and in history we'll see the evil of this world done away with because God has promised us that he will return and that he will come back and he will make what is wrong right not just for a moment or for a season of life, but for this thing called eternity when time ends. So we want you to know the promises of God. We want you to know the Word of God so that you know the God of the Bible. We want you to know the promises of God so that you can know what God has promised to do in our lives so that we can trust it. Now today I want to talk to you about building your life on the Word of God, on the Word of God. We're going to go to Luke chapter 6. If you're not there, I gave you plenty of time, but let me give you a little bit more time to get to Luke chapter 6 in your Bible. In Luke 6, we get the second account within our Gospels of Jesus' longest sermon. It was called the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, depending on which theologian you read. 
uh, in that text, what we see is him ending with the same story in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew puts a lot more detail. It's perhaps the most terrifying text that you find in Matthew chapter 7, around the end of the Sermon on the Mount, about a group of people who lived their lives in some sort of religious interaction and knowledge of God, thinking the entirety of their life that they are known by God, and then finding themselves hearing from God in the end, I don't even know who you are. And Luke recounts it in less detail, but I believe it gets us to this idea and confidence and encouragement that we're given, and that we would not only know God intellectually, but we would have lives that are founded and built on the rock of his character, nature, and word so that we can grow and sustain the storms that come with, against us in life. If you want to be strong in this world, you're going to have to have a life that's built on his word in this world. Let's look at the text. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. This is not my words. This is God's word, so let's pay attention because this is not uh, interpretation. This is straight up his gift given to you, and if you don't like it, you're not disagreeing with me, you're just disagreeing with him. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? We could probably stop, reflect on that, and give an invitation right now. Why do you say Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teachings, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Amen? It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ends with this story about a group of people that know his name, but they do not know him relationally. They know about him, and they can tell you facts around him, but they have not experienced the power of him in their life. When I was growing up, I was extremely shy. There were uh, a lot of girls that I wish knew my name, that I knew about their name, because in some weird way, secondhand through a friend that was courageous enough to go up and talk to them, he had learned some facts about them. So I made up a story about a much older cheerleader. I was in junior high. She was in high school named Kira. And I had heard from a friend that she was the best looking girl at Wren High School. So I thought with her being at Wren High School, with me being at Woodmont High School, there was no way that our paths would cross in the greater Piedmont, Pelzer, Williamston area. And so it was a safe bet and a way to gain credit at my school if I were to take on the fact that that was my girlfriend, that I knew her name. So I began to spread the story around school. People that knew of Kira began to go, wow, you know, that's, that's interesting. You're in seventh grade, you weigh 105 pounds. She's an attractive cheerleader in 10th grade. This doesn't seem to compute as something that would match, but... Nonetheless, I began to build up some credit because I knew her name. And I knew just enough to pass the bill as if we were the real deal. Until the day, unbeknownst to me, that my cousin, who was a cheerleader, got on a travel cheer squad. I didn't know this existed in my seventh grade brain. 
And on her travel cheerleading squad were people from Palmetto High School, people from BHP High School, and people from Wren High School, <laughs> including Kira, who my cousin went and introduced as her boyfriend's cousin. Only to find out she didn't know my name. <laughs> Much to my shame and shock, I then walked the halls on Monday to face the verdict of a girlfriend that was a ghost. <laughs> this is comical because it's true. <laughs> What's not comical is that for some of you it's true about you and Jesus. Many of you sit here today professing with your mouth a name of a God you've never met. You know enough facts about him to pass the bill of looking the part of being the word Christian on the census, but the real struggle is not that you pass the bill of being Christian in a census, it's that you pass the bill of being known by Christ when he stands before you at the end. You see, R.C. Sproul was famous for saying, on the final analysis, it will not be, do you know Jesus, but does he know you? And for a lot of you, you think because you know him and you've got the answers right, you're good, and the problem is... You're not good. You've religiously got an acquaintanceship with a God that you've never met. You've secondhand heard about him, but you've never firsthand experienced him. And we have a firsthand faith that we've been called to, which means grandma's information can't get you past the gate of heaven. It is only being known by him and in his mouth in the book of life that gets you the opportunity to have your sin accounted to his cross so that you can be given what he justly has earned, which is salvation for the least and the lost and the lonely and the worst and the not well put together and the well put together because at the end of the day, all of us standing before God stand in the place of sinner if he doesn't intercede on our behalf as our savior to make us a saint. And so Jesus addresses this group that's highly devoted and highly religious. They have a culture that goes to the synagogue and celebrates the festivals as good Jewish boys and girls are supposed to do. And he gives them a warning. And the warning is not to like the lost Gentiles that are acting crazy and worshiping other gods. It's to the church folk. And the warning is, many of you call me Lord, Lord. Now that's a literary note in the text that we see throughout a lot of scripture. If you look throughout scripture, uh, God, when he calls Abraham, says, Abram, Abraham. Uh, you'll see it in other places. Moses, Moses, God calls out to him in the burning bush. Absalom, Absalom. Or Martha, Martha, whenever she's grieving the loss of her brother Lazarus in Luke 10. Or how about Paul when he's on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and out of the sky. He hears Saul, Saul. Uh, so when you read this, it's not an accident, it's not a repetitive thing that's written in there and we didn't know how to translate it. It, it. It's a literary key tool that is meant to show relational closeness. It's God calling to Saul who doesn't know him saying, no, I know you. <laughs> I'm calling to Moses and saying, hey, I know you've thought you've been lost for 40 years in the backwoods of nowhere, but I know you. Abram, Abraham, I, I know that you do not have a future. I know that you are coming from a place that is a polytheistic, a polytheistic background that worships moon gods, but I know you and I have a plan for you. I relationally am close to you. And here, Luke takes it and he says, there's a group of people that are saying, Lord, Lord, who are claiming relational intimacy and God doesn't even know them. They're claiming 
We're more than friends. This is more than a passing acquaintanceship. This is more than just a once a week relationship. They're claiming we have deep personal relationship with God. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, what's your name? What's your name? So here's the warning. There's a group, perhaps even in this room, who would say, Lord, Lord, I know you. (laughs) Who keep calling him Lord, Lord. And they do not do what he says. This is the warning. This is how we know we're in this group. Instead of being God's messengers, we become God's editors. So instead of the word of God shaping our life, we try to take the word of God and we try to edit it to fit our life. So instead of it being an authority that gives direction and clarity and vision for where we should go, it's become a suggestion that we take in with other suggestions of worldly knowledge that we apply to it, and then we take the best knowledge or versions of it that we Frankenstein together and expect it to create a life that is abundant and overflowing and God-honoring in it, when in actuality what we have is a claim to intimacy with God that is not followed through with an obedience to pursue God. You see, the word Lord suggests that he is your authority. When you call him your Lord, you're saying, you lead. When you call him your Lord, you say, you have the say. When you call him your Lord, you allow him to give direction. He is your leader. You see, to call him your authority and leader and then not yield to his leadership in your life is no different than a person who ignores him and never acknowledges him. You say one thing, do the opposite. I had a friend who preached a revival in Brazil uh, several years back. And it came time for the invitation. There were like five or 6,000 Brazilians that had gathered together to hear the gospel. And so the invitation goes out and the altar is flooded with mainly 25-year-olds and under that are repenting of their sin and crying out to God. And he was overwhelmed. He was like, this is amazing. And he looked back and on the stage there were tons of church leaders and they all were puzzled and concerned. And so after the revival meeting had ended, he goes backstage with the uh, leaders and he said, hey, why were you not joyful and exuberant and excited about what God was doing just now? And the leader said, we've seen this before. The younger generation honors God with their mouth at events like this and then continues sleeping around recreationally with each other and doing whatever they were doing before they ever came in here as soon as they leave. There's no change. There's no transformation. There's no repentance. If anything, they're doing 360s. They come to the event, it's like, hey God, back to life. Hey God, back to life. Hey, and, and nothing's changing. Is this true of you? Do you come in and sing songs to him? Speak of his authority and his power and provision in your life and then live as a practical atheist the rest of the week when you walk from here. How many of your lives are marked with the words Lord on Sunday but the denial of him being Lord on Monday? Living as if your feelings and your own precepts and your own concepts of how life should work are somehow greater than the God of the universe. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon on Luke 6, and in it, he said this about this part of the text. He said, they say unto him, Lord, Lord, 
They meet with his followers and join in with them in reverence to the master's name. But they do not obey the Lord. They hear him, but they fail to do the things which he says. Hence, they are mistaken builders who fell in the foundation and make nothing sure except that their house will come down on their ears. How many of you, because of an acknowledgement mentally of God, but not an acknowledgement to build on the word of God and what you know about him, have experienced a crumbling life that couldn't withstand the storms when they came? You see, what we see is this warning. Many of you say, Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say, which proves that you aren't my children, which proves that you don't know me, which you could slide quickly into a fundamentalist, I've got to earn it faith. But, but know this, that when Jesus is in you, the fruit of him is produced through you. So it's not that we show our works and prove that we are that. I mean, we're talking to a group of Pharisees and Jewish people who were religious and, and ritualistic in their practice of faith. So outwardly, they were constant in it, but they did not have him within them. Therefore, they could not produce his, his fruit through them so that all they could do was make man-made versions of it. Uh, Jesus called it empty tombs or cleaning the outside of the cup, but the cup on the inside is still filthy and dirty and for a lot of us we can get into that trap of thinking well i do therefore i must be when in reality for a lot of us it's only within our own strength that we do the things that we do and call it godly and it's not by the power of god that we do it which is the sign that god's at work in us you see at the end of the day let me make sure that in this moment you don't deceive yourself into thinking that outward appearances is the only measurement of being a follower of jesus it is dwelling in christ and allowing to produce through you the fruit of christ that allows you to be known and have confidence that you are a son and daughter of christ does this make sense make sure you don't get it twisted here and begin to think that because i was at church and i showed up to the mission trip and i gave an extra dollar that was in my pocket that i could have spent on a biggie bag that i'm somehow a follower of jesus and i've got reason to have confidence in my faith no it is when your heart humbly dwells in the gratitude of knowing that jesus is alive in you though there may be imperfections outside of you but he is alive in you that you can have the confidence that the fruit of Christ will be produced in time through you in your life. And so here's the warning. The warning is that some of you here, Lord, Lord, but you do not follow him. You do not obey him. And what we have are two groups in the room. There are hearers that heed and there are hearers that ignore. Some of you hear who he is. You realize he's Lord and you heed it into action. You heed it into you building upon it. But others hear it and we ignore it and walk away from it. See verse 47, if you go back to it, it says this, I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me. That's a good thing. So how do you start? You come to Jesus. You don't fix your life. You come to Jesus. You don't try and make what's wrong right. You come to Jesus. Many of you get into a prayer circle. You say, this is where I'm at. And, and notice what we do. We like to give you advice. What we need to do is what James says to do. If any of you are in sin, are in temptation, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice that it doesn't stop for confess your sins for one another, get advice from the crowd, figure out what Dave Ramsey would say first, then pray. Get to Jesus. That's the starting point of change. You've got to get to Jesus. You don't need to get more advice. Some of you, your biggest problem is you've Googled more than you've Bibled. You need to get to Jesus. Stop Googling how to fix what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords alone can transform in your life. You come to me. This is a good start. You've got to come 
to Jesus. You listen to my teaching. That's what some of you are doing right now. The word of God is being preached and proclaimed. Paul says, how can they hear if no one preaches to them? We preach the word week in and week out here, not to be the entire diet of your relationship with Christ in the word, but to be a supplement to the diet of your relationship with Christ in the word. So you listen to him, which means you do more than what your kids do when you're correcting them. In case you want to know what that means. So some of you sit here like, yeah, yeah, I know that already. Yeah, I know that already. I heard that once. I preached preach that one time. <laughs> Don't do that. Listening requires, in order for listening to happen, the person speaking has to be heard and understood by the person listening. A lot of our problems come from the fact that one person speaking, another person is not listening, miscommunication happens. For a lot of us, this is where we're at. Preachers preach, we sort of listen, but not with attentiveness. Journals are closed, notes are not taken, expectancy of God moving is not present. What ends up happening is we say, good sermon, because it ended on time, it got us out the door to lunch, we feel good about ourselves because we checked our little religious boxes, we don't read the Bible, we don't pursue Jesus, we live in a drought and fast from him for the rest of the week. We come in after several months and we go, it must be the preacher, it must be the music style, it must be a, a different church that we need to go to, because you are wanting to be attached to an umbilical cord that is not from the Spirit of God, but from another person that can force-feed you the Word of God. How many of you have ever been in a youth group that played the little bird game, the, bird, the baby bird game? Any of you ever seen the baby bird game in youth group? It's the most disgusting thing ever. It's where a youth pastor who's lost his mind and is wanting to get fired and trying to see how far he can go <laughs> takes a peanut butter sandwich and chews it up partially. And then the game is you pass it down the line to get it into the... That's what a lot of us are doing week in and week out when we come to this church. You want my food that I've gotten from the word to be the only food you eat. It's disgusting because it's what happens when you get compartmentalized Christianity that doesn't follow Jesus outside of the pastor's eye. I'm being offensive for a purpose right now. Open your Bible and open your ears. To hear his word, not as a suggestion, but as the revelation of Jesus Christ and our absolute, in every moment and in every minute, need to depend upon him. You come to me, you listen to me, and then you what? You follow it. You build your life on it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays a foundation on solid rock. When the flood rotters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. You see, there is a group that hear the word and trust it enough to build on it. There is a group that hear the word and trust it enough to build on it. Psalm 119.11 says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice, it's not just a mental thing. Many of you know the Bible here, but it's when it comes here that you're able to defend with the Word of God whenever the storms of life come and they make you concussed and you're not seeing clearly, not thinking clearly. How many of you have ever sinned or done something you never thought you would do? You came to and went, how'd that happen? And we don't like to admit that or talk about it, but there are a lot of times where we go stupid 
where we go rogue up here, and if the Word of God isn't here, we have no defense because the storm has knocked us off of being able to see clearly. So what do we do? We allow the Word to root in our hearts. That means we meditate on God's Word. We memorize God's Word. We allow God's Word to be chewed on until it begins to change the way in which we think and live and foundationally look at the world around us. If you look at another text, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him. Many of you got into the starting blocks at church camp or at a service. You heard the gospel. You received Jesus. The gun went off for the race to start, and you just started jumping up and down. And everyone's looking at you like, there's a whole race. Why are you celebrating in the starting blocks when there's a whole race to run? Like, like, like I've, I've seen videos of small kids running track, and the, the gun goes off, and they start jumping or celebrating, or they, they don't quite know that that means run, and so they're just standing at the blocks. What's everyone in the crowd doing? Run! Run! Go! Come on! Overzealous mom with a camera. <laughs> no one celebrate. Yes, it's great that the race has started, but that means run now. Allow your roots to grow deep. Don't think that just because you got John 3, 16 and you prayed the prayer and like, like you gave your life to Jesus and you showed up three out of five Sundays. Wow, it's a start. Don't stop until the roots go down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then, as his word goes down, as it roots us deep, then your faith will grow strong. We, we lack or we're weak in faith because for a lot of us, we've not allowed his word to root deep within us. So we still believe the lies that the enemy tells us about ourselves. We still believe the lies that the enemy tells us that the gospel's not enough, that, that Jesus hasn't paid it all, that we have to earn it all, that we've got to get back into this kind of tit-for-tat way of thinking that we somehow are in this weird uh, uh, way of like, uh, if I earn it and I receive it. I put good vibes out there, good vibes come back. That's crap. That's a lot of crap that we've been feeding people in our society. In reality, our faith grows strong when we know that we don't get what we deserve. What we get is what Christ earned, which we never merited and never deserved in our own lives. And it comes from knowing his word and knowing what he has done. Our faith grows strong. And in the truth, you were taught, you will be overflow with thankfulness. They're hearers that heed. They're also hearers that ignore. That's verse 49. They say, Lord, Lord, they do not do what he says. Anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. It looks good until the storm comes. It's fancy. You can put marble in it. You can do the, all the upgrades you want because you didn't have to pay for the foundational work that needed to be there. You can do hardwood floors. Marble countertops, stainless steel appliances. You see, a lot of you got an upgraded build with no foundation. You got a BMW in the parking lot, a gate on your neighborhood, and you got no foundation on your house. And the storm's coming. The storm's coming. And your house isn't ready for what it will bring. Spurgeon went on in that same sermon to say this, the same temptation comes to us throughout our whole life to build with no foundation. 
But to young beginners, it is especially perilous. Satan would have them neglect the fundamental principles upon which their future hope and character are to rest, so that in a future trying hour, from want of a solid foundation, they may yield to evil and lose the whole of their life building. What we have, what we have in our life, is a call to not overlook the things that are of utmost importance in favor of the things that appear to be successful faster and quicker to the eyes of the public. You see, the foundation is easy to neglect. When a building project is going on, the foundation stage moves slow. Ground is leveled. Concrete and or footers are poured. Blocks get stacked. And then you wait on it to dry and settle. There's not much to see. Look at our house. What do you have? Some bricks. What do you have? Some concrete and rebar. But it is on that foundation that everything that is built depends on when the storms come. You see, when exterior framing goes, it goes up quickly. Change is easy to see in that phase, but if the foundational phase isn't set, then everything that is built is in jeopardy of destruction in future storms. You see, this story teaches us two things. Number one, all aspects of life are to be built on this foundation. All aspects of life must be built on this foundation. Don't get it twisted. This is not you need a spiritual life built on the spiritual foundation. All of life is built on this foundation that we're speaking of. That means the way that you date needs to be built on a biblical framework and foundation. The way that you friend needs to be built on a biblical framework and biblical foundation. The way you co-work needs to be built on a biblical framework and biblical foundation. The way you finance, the way that you spend, needs to be built on a biblical framework and biblical foundation. The way that you live and prioritize time needs to be built on a biblical framework and a biblical foundation. The way that you uh, steward your passions and steward the way that you spend time needs to be built on a biblical framework with a biblical foundation. Why? Because storms are going to come. And when those storms come, anything not built on a biblical framework and a biblical foundation will ultimately not stand the test of time. It will break down, fall down, fall apart, need batteries, need fixing, and leave you high and dry and broke and lacking of peace. All aspects of life are to be built on the rock of Christ, which is revealed in his word. The second thing that we see is this. Storms are going to come. Storms are going to come. Both foundations are storm-tested. One can endure, one will fall flat. One endures, one falls flat. When I was in college, I went to school where they made you go to chapel like 19 times a week. The best thing that ever happened to me. I learned and listened to a lot of preaching uh, during that college experience. There was a preacher that came. He and his wife were newlyweds, and they had gone on a delayed honeymoon down to a Caribbean island that had become the it island in the late 90s for celebrities to build their second home at. As they got to their resort, their plan was to, you know, honestly sit back in lawn chairs and do nothing. But they kept getting pressured by the hotel staff to do a boat tour of the island, to get on a boat and go around and see all the sites of the island and the celebrity houses where they could tell you the hubbub about which celeb lives there and, you know, who got into a fight there and what president created a scandal there, stuff like that, you know, the normal stuff. 
they finally gave in and they went on this boat tour. And as they left the island area where the resorts were, they circled the island and began to see where all the private homes were. They were immaculate, beautiful, magnificent, huge homes hanging on the sides of this cliff overlooking crystal blue water. It was literally paradise on earth. They pointed and spoke about different celebrities and athletes and houses that were on that island. But as they kept going around the island, they asked if they could keep going to see the rest of the island. With some reluctancy, the boat captain allowed them to continue on that journey around the island and circle the whole thing, which would take them about an extra hour. But as they kept going, the houses started to look, they looked the same, same size, but they started to look less cared for and less cared for and less cared for until they almost looked dilapidated and some even crumbling and falling down. He asked the boat captain what happened to these houses. Why are they so dilapidated, broken, even though they're so new? And he said, well, the celebrities that came down here at first didn't consult with the local builders. They didn't know how to build on the island. So they dug a foundation that would have worked great in the States, but it was two foot short of being enough on the island. And as a result of a shallow foundation, all of these houses on this side of the island are going to fall off and be unfit to live in because the foundation is weak. Hmm. Friends, how many of you have areas of your life built on the right side of the island, but you've kept your marriage on the wrong side of the island? How many of you have relationships on the right side of the island, but you've kept your finances on the wrong side of the island? And with shallow foundations, you continue to be surprised by the moments in your life where the roots don't hold in the storms when they come. Christ is our firm foundation. He is the rock on which all life builds and thrives on. So at the beginning of the service, I gave an invitation, and all of you stared at me. Some of you even felt bad for me. Y'all have no clue. Imagine giving an invitation to a room of five or 6,000 people and having to wait two or three minutes for people who are wrestling with God and running from Him to respond to God to move. If you're not willing to give an invitation to look foolish for God, and you're not worthy of seeing God move in a revivaling way in your church, At the end of the day, we don't give invitations enough. Invitations for you to respond to God's word and do something with it. In just a few minutes, four people are going to get baptized. They're going to head out that back door and go get changed in this song. But for some of you, I want to ask the question I asked at the beginning of the service at the end. Do you even have the rock that you've built your life on to back the claim of the faith that you supposedly have? How many of you in this room would say, Lord, Lord, but bear none of his fruit in your life. There's no love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no mercy, no self-control. This is not my list. This is Galatians in the Bible. How many of you lack the fruit of God in your life? May this be a warning to you that perhaps the lack of fruit is sign of, at minimum, an indifference to the leadership and lordship of God that has allowed your heart to become numb and apathetic as the church in Ephesus had become in Revelation 3, where they're warned to repent, to return to their first love, to do the things that they did before. For others of you, you've never known Jesus. 
And my invitation to you is that life will not work and will not come into a line with you trying to fix your life and bring it to Him. You need Him to be the foundation of whatever new life He gives you and desires to build for you. And so the starting point is you coming to Christ. And if you've not done that, I want to invite you in this moment to stand up and leave your seat and to walk down front. We're not going to dim the lights. We're not going to play a fog machine. We're not going to get weird about it. Like, like literally, if you need to do business with God, there's an altar. Come and bend your knee and repent. If you need to give your life to Christ, there's a prayer team. Come and talk to them and allow them to lead you in what it means to become a follower of Jesus by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. And if that's what you need to do as we stand up, you move. In Jesus' name, amen.